Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Here, already, we meet the mother of all conspiracies. It's a book that documents a story so dark, so sinister, that it was never meant to see the light of day. It's the secret minutes from a meeting of a globe-spanning group of evil geniuses. They already command legions of followers, and they're gloating about their success, their ongoing plans to control every single aspect of your life, those of your loved ones, in fact, the lives of every single human being on the planet. But wait, it gets weirder. These notes have been widely known about for more than a hundred years, published in dozens of languages, discussed in the upper echelons of governments throughout the world. And yet, and yet, you've probably never read them, or even heard of them. How did this come to pass? The origins of this document are shrouded in mystery. The original printing has been obscured by translations, rewritings, interpretations, attributions, everything that would make its history harder to nail down. The story of the conspiracy is controversial. Some refuse to believe that anyone could have created such a perfect globe-spanning plan and had it proceed so silently, so flawlessly. How could it impact so many aspects of our lives without any of us seeing any outward sign? Finally, some believe that all of these questions and doubts, they're just signs that the conspiracy has already succeeded, that the conspirators are already in total control, that even by investigating, questioning, learning about it, you have marked yourself as a target them and their powerful pawns. But thanks to fear, history, and political correctness, no one even dares to speak its name. But it has a name. It's the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, and it is, at the same time, the most important conspiracist document of all time, and the biggest, most racist pile of anti-Semitic horseshit ever foisted on the world, and everyone who's promoted it as true has blood on their hands. It's that time again. Welcome to the Paranoid Strain. Thanks for joining us for episode two of The Paranoid Strain. I continue to be your host, Fearful Jesuit. If anyone missed our introductory episode, I invite you to skip backward in time and check it out. It offers an overview of what we plan to do here. In a nutshell, we're going to tell you, one wild, unsupported conspiracy at a time, why all of those people you keep meeting in person, reading about online, and seeing on the news believe such weird, weird stuff. Along the way, we're going to see if we can figure out why these ideas develop, why they spread to others, and how they affect our world. This episode's topic, it's a doozy. The history of the book is in itself a fascinating story. And since it's now a founding document for conspiracist thinking, understanding it is incredibly important as we explore other varieties of crazy. So, without further ado, 
Let's hold our noses and plunge into the Declaration of Independence of Conspiracy Nut Jobbery, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Okay, first things first. What the hell are the protocols? For the moment, let's limit ourselves to what they purport to be, rather than what they are. The utterly false, deeply upsetting story is this. In the late 19th century, in a cemetery in Prague, all of the most powerful rabbis in the world gathered together for a grand meeting. Overseeing this meeting was a powerful, devious figure whose Bond-villain cocksure attitude doomed him to reveal the previously ultra-secret details of his and his co-conspirators' plot. Presumably while stroking a hairless cat. Over the course of what must have been an interminable evening, the conspirators read out 24 different protocols, detailing the progress of their plan, covering everything from corruption of politics to dissemination of pornography, devaluing patriotism to using secret control of democracy to manipulate culture. The rabbis are gleeful in the retelling. Their plan, hatched over centuries, is on the verge of its fullest realization. The conspirators will shortly have consolidated their control over the world, and there's nothing the hapless Gentiles can do to stop them. (laughs) If you read these things... And really don't bother. They're horrifying, interminable, and boring as all hell. And aren't already a card-carrying Jew-hater... They're laughable. The dialogue, at least in the English translation, wouldn't feel out of place coming from the mouth of a Michael Bay villain. The weapon in our hands are limitless ambitions, burning greediness, merciless vengeance, hatreds and malice, for example. Couldn't you see one CGI robot declaiming that as another one uppercuts him through the Washington Monument? And yet, these things have not only driven anti-Semitic conspiracist thinking from Tsarist Russia to Hitler's Germany, but even today are widely believed as an accurate and vital historic record by influential people in America, Europe, and especially the Middle East and the broader Muslim world. To figure out why, we have to go back to the beginning. Since the meeting they detail never happened, we need to uncover the origins of the protocols. Where did they come from? What was their effect on the 20th century? And how do they continue to captivate conspiracy theorists even those who aren't avowedly anti-Semitic, even today. But first, please indulge a brief personal aside. I'm a white guy. Surprise! From the American South, raised by Southern parents who never expressed even a hint of racism in their language or the example they set for us. Still... I was, of course, all too familiar with it from the larger culture. While I hated some of my fellow students' anti-black and anti-brown racism, at least I understood where it came from. It's a fear-based caveman response. They look different. Let's hate them. But anti-Semitism threw me for a loop. The first Jewish kid I ever met, in fifth grade, was a blonde, blue-eyed boy from South Africa named, of all things, Brett. It was years before I realized that some are considered to have a Jewish look and longer still before I met a significant number of Jewish peers. Only then did I begin to catch on to the full range of Jewish identity as a complex combination of religious, cultural, and semi-racial signifiers. And call me dense, but only in my early 20s did I really absorb the idea that anti-Semitism wasn't a black-and-white historical horror show that I could tidily offload on mid-century Germans. Before some really good books and professors helped me see its ongoing effect, I hadn't really thought of it as a thing that was still happening especially in my country. Anyway, I'm still kind of baffled by anti-Semitism. It strikes me as odd. White people hating other white people. The kind of stuff that even the most unrepentant, racist, nativist assholes would surely have abandoned by now. Like, no Irish signs, and 
pearl-clutching over Jack Kennedy's allegiance to the Pope. Again, all racism is evil, but anti-Semitism is also confusing, at least to me. While KKK-sympathizing peers in my youth paid lip service to Jewish domination of the government, media, yada yada, I got the impression that they really despised African and Mexican Americans from the depths of their bile-filled guts, while hating Jews was like a rote recitation, the Pledge of Allegiance of Virulent Ignorance. But if you want to know just how deep and dark a hole anti-Semitism can be, learning about the history of the Protocols can be a real eye-opener. Throughout this episode, I'll be relying heavily on David Aronovich's excellent Voodoo Histories, one of the clearest, most helpful, and best-written books I've encountered on the subject of conspiracies in general and the mass hysteria around the protocols in particular. Pick up a copy. It's a great read. For the English-speaking world, the protocols appeared as the center of a media frenzy in the late 19-teens and early 20s. After their initial English-language publication, they sparked a flurry of editorials as the literate bourgeoisie worriedly, and perhaps hopefully, embraced the possibility that their long-standing distaste for their Jewish neighbors was actually warranted, that an ancient world-spanning plot had been revealed just in time for polite society to take action and stop it, that it was the moment to take a stand for queen and country against this previously hidden menace. How common was this attitude in Britain and America? Well, Aronovich quotes the staid, respectable Christian Science Monitor, arguing in a contemporary editorial, It could be a tremendous mistake to conclude that the Jewish peril does not exist. That a secret political organization exists, working unremittingly, is, to the man who can read the science of the times, a thing unquestionable. See, the thing about the protocols is, rabbis or no, it feeds directly into some people's suspicions about the way the world truly works. That unseen forces control everything from the shadows, that every negative influence in the world is not the effect of human vanity, market forces, or dumb luck, but an invisible, deliberate manipulation. And scapegoating Britain's highly assimilated yet embattled Jewish population was just icing on the paranoia cake. Again, quoting Aronovich. What had been discovered appeared to be, in the words of the American academic Richard S. Levy, the veritable Rosetta Stone of history. It suddenly explained everything. You can see where this is going. As the protocol phenomenon snowballed, it became ever more self-supporting. Jewish readers, appalled and rightfully fearful of the repercussions of these lies, wrote in to British newspapers covering the Fuhrer. Of course, those who believed in the protocols saw these denials and protests as panic. The Jews knew their plan had been exposed and that the game was finally up. Then, in 1920, the real origins of the document began fitfully to come to light. First, Careful readers noted that the protocols quoted heavily from a chapter in a German novel called Bieritz, published in 1868 by Sir John Redcliffe, pen name of Hermann Goodish, a renowned anti-Semite and discredited journalist. The book contained a chapter that laid out the basics of the protocols. The graveyard. The idea that it represented glorified minutes of a meeting, and that it was a dry if enthusiastic report on the progress of a global takeover by Jews. It was traced to an 1872 Russian pamphlet, that acknowledged its fictional nature, but insisted that it, quote, revealed a truth. Anyway, it was discovered to have again been republished in 1881 in France as the Rabbi's Speech. 
1891, it was reprinted once again in the Russian city of Odessa, this time as an address given to a secret Sanhedrin council eight years previously. On and on it went, with copied pieces uncovered everywhere. Now, for sensible people, this indicates a series of anti-Semitic forgeries building upon each other. But of course, those who firmly believed in the protocols couldn't be dissuaded. For them, the fact that the same words were coming from so many sources was further evidence that they were true. As Aronovich puts it, they were seen as evidence of the authenticity of both, the one backing up the other. The real Sherlock Holmes who cracked this thing was a guy named Philip Graves, a reporter for the same London Times that started the whole mess in Britain. Graves was approached sometime in the early 1920s by a mysterious figure he called Mr. X. (laughs) Really? Who had acquired a trove of books from someone claiming to have once worked for the Tsar's secret police. And the most interesting of those books turned out to be a French satire from the early 1860s, brimming with jokes at the expense of the then-emperor of France, Louis Napoleon. So what, right? The pre-KGB guy who reported to the Tsar had a taste for simply devilish French political satire. Who gives a shit? Touché. But the thing is, scholars have determined that more than two-fifths of the text that eventually appeared in the protocols was lifted directly from this French book which was written by Maurice Jolie, a Parisian lawyer. His book was a series of dialogues between Machiavelli and Montesquieu, sharing a scandalous bit of drawing-room repartee in hell. But here's the weird thing. There's not a Jew in the book. Nothing in it had anything to do with a rabbinical conspiracy. Instead, our author was lampooning Louis Napoleon's lust for power, putting his words in the mouth of the widely reviled Machiavelli so as to avoid jail time or worse. Freedom of expression wasn't a big deal to Louis Nap. So yes, it's got tons of quotes about manipulating the world behind the scenes, but those satire an emperor overstepping his bounds, and say nothing about the small and persecuted religious group that supposedly started running the world while no one was looking. Graves published a devastating takedown of the protocols that finally began turning popular opinion. At least among the chattering classes. Against them. Okay, so for those keeping score, we now know that some of these words originally poked at the pretensions of a lackluster scion of the House of Napoleon, and others were placed in the mouths of Jewish characters in a forgotten novel by a German anti-Semite. But how did they jump from two forgotten fictions to a widely believed influential pseudo-historical text? Here we turn to another reporter, Herman Bernstein, from the New York Herald, who at the request of his editors began working on the topic in 1919. As a Jew himself, Bernstein knew both that the protocols were obviously a crude hoax, and also that they could be used as a cudgel by those who were always in search of new justifications for their irrational Jew hatred. Unfortunately, history would eventually prove him very, very right. Bernstein began investigating, following a tangled history of publication and handoffs back to one Pyotr Rachkovsky. We're almost sure that pronunciation was wrong. Russian secret policeman with a long history of forgeries. Bernstein's book, The History of a Lie, conclusively linked the creation of the protocols to the orders of Rechkovsky as an anti-Semitic tool in his ongoing battle against Russian reformers who wanted to mitigate the Tsar's absolute authority. Clearly, his work's fame had spread well beyond the domestic market. And so, the whole sordid mess moved toward its conclusion. Noted English journalist, historian, and advocate for Jewish rights, Lucian Wolff, wrote in the preface to his book on the subject, I confess to a feeling of shame at having to write this pamphlet at all, that reputable newspapers in this country should be seeking to transplant here the seeds of Prussian anti-Semitism, and that they should employ for this purpose devices so questionable and a literature so melodramatically silly 
cannot but cause a sense of humiliation to any self-respecting Englishman. Still, for any reasonable, sober-minded individual, with Bernstein's pioneering journalism, the Protocols had for all time been proven a detestable evil forgery, and so, of course, no one ever took them seriously again. (sighs) Wasn't that a lovely world we all pretended to live in for a moment there? Yeah, so... I don't know if you're aware of this, but anti-Semites are kind of tenacious. Like, they're really fond of despising Jews and would prefer if you didn't get in their faces with all of your facts and reason. Having lost the ear of respectable society, they immediately regrouped and figured out totally plausible to them reasons why, yes, the protocols might be kind of a forgery if you actually investigate them or follow the historical record or some sort of philo-Semitic shit like that. But they still spoke the truth because, like, maybe the French lawyer who wrote them was actually a secret Jew. And so even though he was trying to satirize Napoleon III, he was so super Jewy that his essential Jewish hatred of all that was decent and good made him put words in the French emperor's mouth that secretly revealed the real-life facts of the rabbinical conspiracy that is secret taken over the world and that every single Jew on earth knows about but keeps totally secret. When you say like that, it, it just seems so damn plausible. I know, this line of thinking is akin to like how two-faced Kylie says she's all BFFs with Jessa, but I hear she's gonna hook up with Jessa's FWB tenor at the winter social because she never got over that cute Instagram photo of Jessa in that dress she bought first, and now she looks like she bites Jessa's style in any way that bitch thinks she's so cute. But as Aronovich describes it, this is pretty close to the thought process of leading figures like Lord Alfred Douglas lifelong anti-Semite, and the dickhead who put Oscar Wilde in jail for thinking dudes were cute. Eventually, someone produced proof that Jolie... You remember, the French lawyer. ...was actually a Catholic, so the whole he's a Jew so he couldn't help but accidentally spill the beans theory was kind of dead in the water. Did any of this matter to believers in the protocols? You know the answer to that. At some point around here, with a heavy assist from noted American anti-Semite Henry Ford... More on him later, comes the key handoff to Austria's most famous shitty painter. Hitler ruminates on the protocols in Mein Kampf, of course. Spoiler, he's a big, big fan. It was better than Cass. He's going to see it again and again. I'll quote Aronovich's synopsis here, since unlike Der Fuhrer, he is a gifted and nuanced writer. His argument is undefeatable. The protocols confirm what I believe and what I think I see around me. Therefore, they are true in the most important sense, even if they themselves are forgeries. Furthermore, whether they are forgeries or not does not matter. Because they confirm what we see around us, they will help people better understand what is going on. So, you know, they're bullshit, but damn it, they're our final solution supporting bullshit. Unfortunately, we know how the history goes from there. In Hitler's Germany, not only were the protocols widely printed in red as well as enthusiastically promoted from the very upper echelons of the Nazi hierarchy, including propaganda minister Goebbels in particular. Aronovich points out that the rabbi's speech was part of Theodore Fritsch's Handbook of the Jewish Question, which was required reading for Third Reich school kids. He also quotes another Nazi, Professor von Leers, as follows. Not only is each people morally justified in exterminating the hereditary criminals, But any people that still keeps and protects Jews is just as guilty of an offense against public safety as someone who cultivates cholera germs. After the war, as the unforgettable film of the horrors of the final solution spread throughout the world, for at least a little while it seemed as if the voices of anti-Semites were forced to take a back seat. 
Israel was founded, giving understandably fearful Jews around the world the promise of a refuge and homeland should dark times return. The governments and people of the world, most of all Germany's, struggled to absorb the weight of their guilt, how their complicity, passivity, and culpability in this unprecedented, unchecked evil had liquefied two-thirds of the Jews in Europe in just a few years. But if there was any good that could be said to come out of these horrors, at least the protocols, so linked to the propaganda that whipped up the Nazis' murderous hatred, were finally put to rest, and no one ever took them seriously again. Nope. Yeah, unfortunately not. It turns out that the protocols are just too good to give up. I mean... Obviously, the anti-Semites who immediately went to work denying the unimpeachable, thoroughly documented, eyewitness-attested, goddamn-captured-on-motherfucking-film fact of the Holocaust saw no reason to even miss a beat. Willis Carto, perhaps the most significant American figure in post-war Holocaust denial, accused the Jews themselves of fabricating the Holocaust as a means of wrenching reparations from the poor Germans. You've gotta hand it to these guys. They turned genocide into a weird, diabolical double bluff that fits right into their dedicated protocol believers' personal narrative of the perfidious Jews. Dicks. But the weirder thing is the way that the protocols continue to exert a hold on the minds of conspiracists who don't seem to have any axes to grind with the Jews. But we'll get to that, along with a discussion of the book's ongoing global political implications, a little later. So, having waded our way through the horrifying story of the Protocols, we now have the opportunity of discussing them and their effect on the history and future of anti-Semitism and conspiracy thinking with John Efron, hereafter known as Blind Lemon. Uh, my name is John Efron, and I teach uh, Jewish history at the University of California at Berkeley in the 18th and 19th century. And uh, a lot of my work actually touches on the history of anti-Semitism. I grew up in, um, in Melbourne uh, in a... Uh, largely refugee and uh, Holocaust survivor community. I was you know, very well aware of you know, pretty much all the anti-Semitic tropes, but I wasn't aware of their origins. And so later on, I found out exactly about the, the text itself and uh, the ramifications of the text. We never spoke about it, really. Um, Australia has been blessedly um, pretty free of anti-Semitism. Um, what were your first thoughts when you actually encountered the full tract itself? How did it strike you? Well, I thought it was crazy, especially uh, you know, being Jewish. You you know just how laughable the claims are about you know organizing a world Jewish conspiracy. But it is you know as the old uh, adage says, it's a lie that's so big and repeated so often that it becomes believable for those who are already predisposed to believe such things about Jews. Because there's always been an undercurrent of anti-Semitic publications, I am kind of curious why this particular one ended up having the place that it did at the center of so much rabid anti-Semitic ranting and, and the power that it has over people with that mindset, as opposed to other similarly scurrilous writing that is kind of faded into the, the background. There are a few reasons. One is that it's largely a secular text. It doesn't talk about Judaism itself as a religion as being wrong. 
and it talks about controlling the world. So it's political in nature. One of the other things that's very powerful about it, of course, is that it has a kind of a, you know, hesitate to say it, but it has a sort of a, an elegant simplicity. Whatever problem you perceive there to be in the world, um, the answer is, well, it's the fault of the Jews. So it's a ready-made, very easily assimilable answer. The other thing that makes it compelling is that it appears in the form of a story the purported minutes, you know, of a meeting of Jewish elders. So it's written, as it were, by the Jews themselves. So that gives it a certain uh, authenticity. It has a secret quality that, you know, the Jews wouldn't write this stuff down if it weren't true. The notion of um, a Jewish conspiracy uh, really has its roots in antiquity. It's deeply a part of the Christian tradition. Um, you know, the church, the fourth century church father, Oregon, said of the Jews that they had purportedly crucified Jesus. He said that they had actually formed a conspiracy against the human race. So there is already, you know, at the early phases of Christianity, the notion of the Jews as a, as a sort of a cabal. And then, of course, all the accusations, whether it's blood libel or there was uh, another accusation about desecrating the host. Um, Medieval charge where Jews, a group of them would uh, you know, sneak into a church, um, grab the wafer, then take it back to their lair uh, and begin stabbing it. But it's always done in a group. So that in itself is conspiratorial. Many of these medieval religious claims um, are rooted in the sense that the Jews are acting as a group malevolently against Christian society. And what you get in the modern period, of course, is the Jews acting as a malevolent group against society. There's been a secularization of a process and a set of beliefs that were already long established. Another thing that I think the you know, gives the book its power, of course, is its vagueness, the absence of dates and names. You would think that that would hinder its popularity, but it actually um, did the opposite. I think the other thing is that there's the inherent contradictions within modern anti-Semitism, mean that there is something in it for everyone. That is to say, the Jews can be accused of being capitalists. They can also be accused of being responsible for communism, for both parliamentary democracy and for tyranny. They promote philo-Semitism in order to garner support, but they can also be said to promote anti-Semitism for their own political ends. They, they're out to control the world, but they'll do it in all sorts of ways. And it doesn't seem to make any difference that you can accuse them of being children of the Rothschilds or children of Karl Marx. It doesn't blunt the argument. And then, of course, all of this is done through their control of the press and the media. Even though in Germany, for example, Goebbels was a true believer in the protocols. He was a pathological anti-Semite. But he was also the minister of propaganda. And it was he who was the one who actually controlled the press and the media. Well, you know, since we are transitioning to uh, the Third Reich, when talking about Hitler's Germany and its embrace of the protocols, at the same time, Hitler is saying that Jewish people are weak, subhuman, basically comparing them to vermin and, and things like that. But also, they are all powerful and control the entire world. And uh, like, how, how can you hold both of those thoughts in your head at the same time? It seems almost impossible. Yes, but it's actually essential to uh, a Nazi worldview. And that's what makes Nazi anti-Semitism different from their persecution and even genocide of other groups. Uh, for example, 
when the gypsies were killed by the Nazis, of course, right? But never, ever did they say about the gypsies that they, they controlled the world. In this sort of context, that, that would have been absurd. They didn't believe that. They killed them because they believed them to be inferior. The Jews were both inferior and also superior, right, in the T4 program. You'll handicap people, but they never said that the handicapped are going to take over the world, that they control the press and the banks, etc., etc. No, that, that, that is reserved for Jews. And so that's why the extermination of the Jews had to be total, that you couldn't afford to leave any alive. That was the goal, because they would form, uh, I think Hitler said something like, the germ of a, you know, of a rebirth that would come back to, to, uh, to bite us. Well, as long as we have dived into this horrendous subject, it's interesting to me in, in looking into this how it's a Russian forgery of a combination of German and French texts that then sort of jumps into the English language press in the 1920s. But then, of course, obviously, it makes its biggest impact in Hitler's Germany. Can you give us an idea of how central the protocols were to disseminating their ideas of the evils of Judaism and Jews to the German populace and getting them to go along with everything up to the final solution? Well, it's a central, it's a central text. The, the, the Nazis uh, never stopped uh, harping on um, about um, the world Jewish conspiracy. Uh, it was absolutely central to Nazism from the very beginning. That is to say, from 1919, when the party was formed, they helped perpetuate um, what was called the stab in the back legend, that the Jews had conspired to bring about Germany's defeat in World War I. Um, and so that in itself is conspiratorial. It's almost like a sort of a founding text of the Nazi canon. It was a perfect explanatory text uh, for things that Hitler had already, you know, believed and thought of. You know, if you're not so inclined to to, to these beliefs, you wouldn't pick it up to begin with. Here you have it all laid out for you in a, sort of a rather user-friendly fashion and the style of the text uh, just validates uh, your already pre-existing, uh, pre-existent ideas about Jews. So it's extremely important. You need to have the right political circumstances, the right political conditions, and Nazi Germany provided that. You know, when the text was um, concocted, Political conditions were not right to uh, to turn this into um, a text that you would take action upon. And if I understand correctly, it was originally sort of a, yet another propaganda effort in trying to oppose the various groups who wanted the Tsar to cede power at the time, concocting this lie about uh, the uh, Jewish allies of folks who were trying to lessen the autocratic tendencies of the Tsar's regime, and this was to discredit them in some way. Well, yes, and it even goes a little further than that. And what I would say is there is, depending on how anti-Semites pose the question, uh, there's kind of a scintilla of truth in some of the things that they say. What I mean is the anti-Semites would, would say, who do you think was in favor of parliamentary democracy? or women's suffrage, or homosexual rights. Well, of course, in Germany in the 19th century, Jews were indeed in favour of those things. Obviously not as pa- not part of any sort of Jewish conspiracy, but as part of a general sense 
that uh, Germany would be a better place with such things enshrined in law. And of course, to their credit. And the Jews, of course, and the Jews would be better off for it. But it predates, it predates any, uh, you know, the late 19th century. We already see in the French Revolution, uh, opponents of the French Revolution ask sarcastically, who are the real beneficiaries of the revolution? The Jews was the answer. Well, that's actually true. You know, they achieved political emancipation thanks to the revolution. You know, the Jews neither orchestrated the revolution nor were they even, you know, the principal uh, or the only beneficiaries of it. You can twist the question in such a way that it makes them look like, you know, the singular beneficiaries of, of big political changes. The entire Nazi movement was based on um, the identification of enemies and the eradication of enemies. And so once again, the protocols uh, demonstrate who the arch enemy is, um, and that becomes what the uh, British uh, historian Norman Cohen called a warrant for genocide. That's a reference to the protocols themselves. And, and there's, if, if I'm correct, there's a version of the protocols that was actually taught as part of a core textbook to uh, German schoolchildren. In uh, in the Nazi oh, period. No, oh, absolutely not. Yes, I mean, absolutely. It was taught. Uh, it was taught in schools. Um, the Hitler Youth had it. German troops who invaded the Soviet Union in 1941 carried copies of it into battle. It was read at the Kaiser's court. The Nazis really contributed very little, I think, to the discourse of anti-Semitism. They never said anything about the Jews that hadn't, in some way. Uh, been said before, again, you know, to the protocols written decades before Hitler comes to power. So what was new was their willingness once in political power to use the state apparatus to restructure the entire German state along racial lines, strictures of their citizenships and their rights, their assets, and then ultimately their lives. So no state had ever done that before. So Real innovation of the Nazis were not so, was not so much what they said about Jews, but what they did to them. That was very different. That was unprecedented. I wanted to ask you about uh, the ongoing influence of the protocols on the history of the American right-wing sort of militia uh, movement in general. What I would say about the um, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories is that the A, sadly, they are alive and well, and with the internet, they've exploded after being relatively dormant for some time. Um, but the conspiracy theories actually are such that they, um, they cross uh, party lines and they can be found uh, certainly on the right but also on the left as well. All the usual ones are still about, and you hear it um, very frequently about controlling the media, about Hollywood, um, about the banks, about uh, you know, who created... Uh, the Federal Reserve or the International Monetary Fund; those are all those, those are all standard um, standard things. And in there, you know, it can be the right complaining about you know or using the code word, which we actually heard uh, in, in in the recent primaries uh, from uh, Ted Cruz, some reference to New York values. That's a dog whistle. That's code. Uh, or you you hear about the, the liberal New York media. That's the New York Times uh, again. Uh, those that's code that's code for Jews, but and so the militia the militia movement the uh, Christian identity movements they all they all uh, trade in um, in uh, 
conspiracy theories, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. But then there's, um, you know, there are the, the truthers, the 9-11 truthers tend to be, you know, on the left of the, of the spectrum. And some of those uh, talk about uh, uh, Mossad as having brought the towers down. And there's all sorts of conspiracies about, you know, all the Jews who worked in the towers were called that morning not to go to work. And that's why there are very few Jewish, very few Jewish deaths. On the left, a very popular one about Israel is that the Israeli government has a policy of murdering Palestinians for the purposes of uh, harvesting their organs. I don't know where you put Hamas, you know, on the, spe- on the political spectrum. But if you re- read the Charter of 1988, they explicitly and openly, this is not an implication, but they explicitly blame the Jews for both the French and the Bolshevik revolutions. That's their founding document. Fascinating. Uh, you can't look into the protocols without seeing the degree to which uh, they continue. I mean, from Egyptian um, uh, TV miniseries to um, to Hamas children's programming, it's astonishing the degree to which they are accepted as simple fact by folks for whom their acceptance uh, it feeds into a political narrative that's convenient. Well, sadly. Um Protocols are one of the best-selling books in the Muslim world. A colleague of mine went to Indonesia and saw them um, in the airport bookstore. So it's very, very open. The point about the protocols and their afterlife, uh, these kinds of conspiracy theories, including one um, that was in uh, August the 20th, 2015, and the headline read, Hamas claims to have captured a dolphin being used as an Israeli spy off this, this is what I would call the afterlife of the protocols. The protocols themselves are still around. It's not as though they've been superseded, but they have given inspiration to the most outlandish insanities uh, and inanities that you can imagine, all of which seems to be believable to those, again, who are predisposed to believing them. It's almost as if by putting the conspiracy beyond the realm of testability, it then essentially gives license to all sorts of magical thinking as long as the Jews can be blamed on the other end because they clearly have magical powers. If they have an all-powerful conspiracy that there isn't any direct evidence for, then you can, you can assign any phenomenon or contradictory phenomena to them. And you don't need any evidence. Rumor is enough, uh, innuendo, and just a belief that the Jews are capable of all these things. I mean, they're really outlandish things. I mean, it's it's insane. It's like you, no one. I just don't understand how anyone who has ever met a Jewish person could possibly think any of this stuff is true. It, it's risible, except that it is deadly serious on a different level. Especially the part about uh, working together. I mean, again, I mean that, that that's the other thing. Of course, is that all this is predicated on some sort of belief. Jews always and forever work in complete harmony and tandem with each other. In complete secrecy as well. Like in total harmony, absolutely silent, uh, no disagreement, all working toward this end. That's right. And so you asked me in the beginning, you know, what, what, what were my first thoughts, you know, when I encountered it. And, you know, it's laughable, except that it has had literally deadly consequences. So can you give us any sort of hope that maybe at some point the uh, power that this weird document uh, has over conspiracy-minded people will ever break or in any way wane? Uh, no. 
<laughs> Thanks. Well, are you speaking to the wrong guy for that? In fact, I would say that anti-Semitism in general, the life of the protocols, you know, really decreased after World War II. But uh, a number of things, including Israel, but also the advent of the internet, has just breathed new life into conspiracy theories. I mean, all you need to do, I think, is go to Google, uh, type in Jews, and I think within, you know, just a couple of websites down, you're already into a very, very dark place. And it's all, it's all about conspiracies. I mean, it, it, it is just all about that. Professor John Efren, otherwise known as Blind Lemon, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us today. Thank you, uh, Fearful Jesuit, for having me on. It was really a pleasure talking to you. Now we come to the section of the show where we hear from our readers. Remember that you can email in with your questions, either typed or recorded as audio clips, to theparanoidstrain at gmail.com, and be sure to include the pseudonym you'd like me to use for you on the podcast. It was a little audacious to have a letters section in our debut episode. And yes, our protestations to the contrary, we did include an obviously self-penned missive from a made-up listener. But this time, we have a real-life message from a real-life correspondent. Mm, nope. No, we don't. Oh, right. Unfortunately, we don't have that yet. To pull the curtain back a little bit, putting these episodes together takes so long that we actually had to get a few, including this one, in the can before we launched the series. So while in the future you should definitely expect us to be answering real-life questions from real-life listeners, this time we will once again hear from someone with a suspicious-sounding pseudonym asking a question that ties in surprisingly well with the next topic in our discussion. And so, we turn to Nervous Franciscan. Who writes, Dear Fearful Jesuit, I am both surprised and very pleased to hear that this episode is going even better than the last one. A feat I would hardly have thought possible. And don't worry, it is definitely not a sign of insecurity to write self-aggrandizing compliments into letters that are supposedly from your listeners. In fact, all of the cool podcasters are doing it. Anywho... While we unfortunately all know that the protocols were one of the most important documents the Nazis used to support their murderous campaign against the Jewish people, I bet that oodles of dedicated lunatics still believe in and promote them for various ends even today. Could you perhaps offer some additional information on the modern misuse of the protocols? Well, Franciscan... Let me start by saying that I appreciate the compliments, coming as they do from a trusted and unbiased third party. Come on, really? Okay, fine. Before I take this whole notion too far, let's explore the ways that the protocols are to this day impacting global events, fueling hatred and distrust, and most strangely, feeding into conspiracies that outwardly have nothing at all to do with Jews or anti-Semitism. Professor Michael Barkun, in his 2003 book, A Culture of Conspiracy, documents the broad influence of the protocols across conspiracist groups, from ufologists to believers in the grand global conspiracy controlled by the inevitable Illuminati. Can't wait to get to those guys. As an example of the latter, he points to Des Griffin, whose book, Fourth Reich of the Rich, was published in 1976. 
Griffin asserts that Jews are important to the plot he calls the long-range master plan, which of course is a version of the protocols, but he also believes that their prominence in the book serves as a means of concealing the true puppet masters. A comparatively small group of immensely wealthy, diabolically crafty, and extremely influential men. Come on, you get one guess. Hint, it rhymes with Illuminati. In this way, we find a new synthesis of crazy, the Illuminati Protocols hybrid, which remains a standard tenet of conspiracist thinking today. As for the UFO conspiracist community, Barkun notes that some began with conspiracy theories that had nothing to do with anti-Semitism, yet in some cases ended up testifying to the veracity of the protocols. Furthermore, traditional anti-Jewish stereotypes are projected onto a world of alien races so that some extraterrestrials function as surrogate Jews, that is, they receive the physical and behavioral characteristics imputed to Jews in traditional anti-Semitism. In his fascinating study of the post-9-11 conspiracist landscape among the truthers, Jonathan Kay points out that UFO conspiracist Milton William Cooper enthusiastically backed the protocols but warned his readers that they had been written intentionally to deceive people. For clear understanding, any reference to Jews should be replaced with the word Illuminati, and the word Goyim should be replaced with the word Kettle. I'm not positive, but I'm assuming that cattle reference is to the general ufologist obsession with aliens' reputed string of cattle mutilations. But really, who knows? Coming from a completely different angle, Kay points out that some of the pseudo-historians whose revisionist fever dream writings about Jesus formed the backdrop for those horrible Dan Brown novels insist that the original, not-a-forgery version of the Protocols had nothing to do with the Jews and everything to do with the Masons. As we travel through conspiracist thinking, you'll find it's almost always the Jews, the Masons, the Illuminati, or some combination of the three. And British nutbar David Icke, who has spent the past few decades insisting that a race of lizard people in human suits secretly control the Earth, blames the protocols on... Uh, Gila monsters or something? It gets pretty confusing. Arthur Goldwag, in his Cults, Conspiracies, and Secret Societies, sums it up pretty nicely. They offer something invaluable for all conspiracists, not just anti-Semites. A ready-made, one-size-fits-all template for any and all paranoid theories about secret societies. But of course, the most important impact of the protocols on the modern world is much bigger and still more troubling. And we're far from the first to explore this question. In 2005, a documentary filmmaker named Mark Levin, distressed at the resurgence of anti-Semitism he had perceived, especially from the Islamic world, in the wake of 9-11 and the invasion of Iraq, set out to understand the continuing influence of the Protocols globally. The resulting documentary, simply titled Protocols of Zion, is a distressing review of some of the document's greatest modern hits. As you might guess, tensions between the state of Israel and its Islamic neighbors have meant that many Muslims throughout the world, incensed by what they see as the West's bending to the will and interests of the tiny Jewish state, are very much inclined to believe that the conspiracy described in the Protocols is proceeding according to plan. He gets started with some truly upsetting quotes from folks on the streets of New York. All of this stuff that happened here in America, the Jews, here's my point. During the time of the World Trade Center, you've seen every funeral be covered for everybody. You've not seen one Jewish funeral covered on the media because no Jews died in the World Trade Center. You mean to tell me, so you mean to tell me that every single Jew in the World Trade Center knew about it beforehand and not one of them would have said anything that because you were saying to them. We're saying they didn't go to work. And he also speaks with some prisoners who have strong beliefs on the topic. 
Where did you first become familiar with the protocols of the elders' design? In prison. How did it read to you? I mean, what did very, it? It was very believable. It it was like, okay, finally, I got the proof. This this is it. I finally got. I finally can prove that you know that these Jews are really trying to take over the world. I've noticed a lot of the policies that are being made today, the neoconservatives, they they fall right in line, almost in sync with what was said in the Protocols of Zion. When you grow up black in America... All the time working to engage in dialogue with these folks and understand why they believe the way they do. Of course, he talks to completely unreachable nutjobs like this neo-Nazi asshole who sells the Protocols. The Protocols being one of them. It's a timeless book. It's always going to sell. Sold out. Right. They're on order. We'll be getting more in. Do you think that this book, I mean, you said now you have Mein Kampf right here, right? Mm -hmm. Do you feel that the Protocols had any influence on Hitler? Hitler definitely knew about the Protocols. I mean, he was pen pals with Henry Ford. What about this uh, rumor uh, that Hitler himself had Jewish blood? I mean, that was like an explanation for why he hated Jews so much, is that he feared that he himself was part Jewish. See, I think that's a Jewish mindset that could even grasp that concept. Because to me, if you're part Jewish, then why do you want to kill off the Jewish people? Because you want to kill it in yourself. Well, Hitler, I don't see himself as suicidal in the slightest. I thought he... He committed suicide. Yeah, real credit to his race. And then there's a deeply distressing radio call-in show hosted by the founder of the website, Jew Watch. (laughs) I'm looking at protocol number 12. And we shall deal with the press in the following way. We shall saddle and bridle the press with a tight curb. So, the elders of Zion say that they will take over this world. Have they done it? What do you think? 454-0400, you're old Couchy, and you are a star. If it walks like a duck, if it looks like a duck, if it quacks like a duck, then it probably is a duck. And from what I remember of the protocols of Zion, the first way they wanted to destroy religion was to promote gambling and pornography and all the vices. Well, ask yourself, who's in control of all the uh, devices in today's world, all the pornography and gambling and all that? It's Jews. And who's promoting misogyny and, and, um, you know, racial mix-up? It's the Jews. But it gets so much worse when the film excerpts the ostensibly moderate former prime minister of Malaysia going full-bore protocols at a 2003 Islamic conference. The Europeans killed 6 million Jews out of 12 million. But today the Jews rule this world by proxy. They get others to fight and die for them. They invented socialism, communism, human rights and democracy so that persecuting them would appear to be wrong so they may enjoy equal rights with others. With this, they have now gained control of the most powerful countries. And they, this tiny community... Levin also notes an array of horrific, protocols-inspired propaganda that is rife in the Middle East, from a soul-crushing TV interview with an adorable little girl who has been brainwashed to believe that God wants her to hate Jews because they are dogs and pigs, to excerpts from a 41-part TV series that aired on Egyptian television in both 2002 and 2012, one of the chief themes of which is the powerfully prophetic truths of the protocols which are acted out and discussed at length. And of course, the protocols are still part of the curriculum at some schools in the Middle East, much as they were in Goebbels, Germany. I'm sure that, like me, you find this all very depressing. To wrap it up, I turn once more to Mr. Aronovich, who eloquently summarizes the situation. 
So a Palestinian child in a Gazan class at the beginning of the 21st century may well be hearing things written by a Parisian lawyer about Napoleon III 140 years earlier, falsified by a Russian spy three decades later, and used as a pretext for racial mass murder in Germany. Yep, that's pretty grim. So to help restore your faith in humanity, and with the kind permission of its creator, I present the buoyantly funny song Protocols by the indie-rockingest rabbi I've heard... Rav Shmuel. Some people ask me if I'm Jewish. Some people look at me and know. Some people want to know if I believe in Jesus and have trouble when the answer is well, no. Some people think that that's my right. Some people think that I am damned. Some people think that I'm a part of a conspiracy to take over the world and rule with an iron hand. You see, the protocols of the elders of Zion are true, and I am a member of standing. Our goal is to milk all the money from you. It's world domination we're planning. Oh, no, Some people ask if I'm Middle Eastern. Some people stare at me with hate. Some people want to know if I pick up every penny, so they toss them at me and quickly drive away. Some people think that that's my right. Some people think that I am damned. Some people think that I should pack up all my bags and get out of the promised land. You see the protocols of the elders of Zion, the truth, and I am a member of standing. Our goal is to milk all the money from you. It's world domination we're planning. Oh, no, no, no. Some people stare at me when I pray. Some people want to know if I know the Kabbalah and have trouble when the answer is why don't you ask Madonna? Some people think that that's my right. Some people think that I am damned. Some people think that I'm a real threat to world freedom and that I will turn their oil into sand. You see the protocols of the elders of Zion are true And I am a member of standing Our goal is to milk all the money from you It's world domination we're planning Oh no, there I go, I whip the cat right out of the bag Will you please keep my secret, I pray Cause I'm undercover as a singer-songwriter right here at the side I defy you to find a more toe-tapping ditty about a legendary hate-filled forgery. Thanks, Rabbi.
you're a real mensch. And now we come to the section of the podcast where we recognize the contributions of a particularly paranoid individual to the proud history of craziness. There were a number of notable Americans who, in the period around 1920, caught wind that the protocols offered an exciting new opportunity for mindless fear-mongering, and apparently decided they needed to get them a piece of that action. And while there were other driving forces in the protocol's dissemination in the Western Hemisphere, the prime mover was none other than the man behind the Model T. And now, ladies and gentlemen, from the four corners of our great land, we present this episode of Profiles in Crazy. By the 1920s, Henry Ford was already a legendary industrialist. One of the richest men in the world, he had secured his name for all time in the history books as the popularizer of the automobile and the innovator of the assembly line. Having reached the pinnacle of success, he was apparently looking for a new hobby. He found his second wind as a publisher of conspiracy tracts, primarily those focused on those rascally ne'er-do-wells, the Jews. And because he was rich and influential, he was able to use his very own Vanity Press newspaper to promulgate his prejudices. Again, quoting Aronovich in Voodoo Histories. On May 22, 1920, and for 91 successive weeks after that, the Dearborn Independent devoted itself to campaigning on what it called the international Jew, the world's foremost problem. A month into this, no doubt scintillating run, the protocols made their way into the series and served as a cornerstone of the endless ranting thereafter. In fact, Ford wasn't satisfied with a single bite at the apple on selling the emerging American middle class on the protocols. He had the whole series bound into two volumes and sold over 500,000 copies domestically, with even more making their way back over the pond. As noted by filmmaker Mark Levin, If you bought a new Ford, you could also get a free copy. Like me, you might be asking, Dude, what the fuck was Henry Ford's deal with the Jewish people? I gotta be honest, I'm still not sure. He was suspicious of the establishment, considering himself a self-made guy, and perhaps this fed into an apprehension of other successful people. Aronovich notes that Ford was suspicious of how three or so percent of the population could have so many members rise to positions of power and influence. Forgetting, we suppose, that he himself was just such a powerful, influential, and unlikely riser. On the website for the PBS American Experience biography of Ford, there's a great interview with Hasia Diner, professor of American Jewish history at NYU, on the potential origins of Ford's anti-Semitism. Professor Diner notes... The world that Henry Ford grew up in was one that very likely offered him certain themes about the Jews. He might have heard about them in church, that they were responsible for the crucifixion. He could have heard about them when somebody grumbled about having shopped in a Jewish-owned store and felt that they didn't get the right price or that they were sold shoddy goods. There were many places in which the Jew serves as almost both a theological and a kind of radicalized symbol of forces that people consider to be nefarious. And Professor Diner provides some important context about the outsized effect that Ford's words had on the American society of his time. Some local tavern keeper makes an anti-Semitic remark over the bar? Well, nobody cares. But Henry Ford's ability to gain a national audience with his words made him a very dangerous person. Given how absolutely bleak all of this is, it is at least nice to reflect that the company that bears his name has gone to some lengths to distance itself as much as possible from the blinding, ignorant hatred of its legendary founder. Not only has the Ford Motor Company made significant donations to Jewish organizations over the years, but since 2014, the man whose name is at the top of the company's org chart is Mark Field, 
an honest-to-God, bar mitzvahed, conservative Jew. I hope that Hitler-enabling motherfucker is turning in his grave like the crankstarter on a Model T. For what it's worth, Ford recanted his support for the protocols in the late 20s. Unfortunately, it's not worth much. Bystanders insisted he was blaming Jews for starting World War II from his deathbed. But most importantly, millions of people were killed, and even more had their lives irreparably harmed, in part by the spread of his paranoid strain. This has been The Paranoid Strain. Follow us on Twitter at The Paranoid Strain, email us at theparanoidstrain at gmail.com, and visit on the web at theparanoidstrain.com. Please be sure to rate and review us on iTunes as it helps other people find the show. Special thanks to our invaluable dialogue partner, Professor John Efren, a.k.a. Blind Lemon. As always, we're grateful for the musical stylings of Daniel Arizona and the Paranoid Strain Orchestra, and indebted to the dulcet Northern European interjections of Ms. Dana Unicorn. Final mixing assistance comes from Big Mucho. Downtown Abbey is our web designer, and Willem UFO makes the pretty pictures. I'm Fearful Jesuit. Thanks for listening. Next episode, we start a three-part series on the militia, sovereign citizen, and tax resistor movements, all of which are intimately connected. Until then, remember, the world is chaotic, but it's not out to get you. Or at least, not you specifically. Paranoid, 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 paranoid.